0: This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Martin Forsen and John Bursey, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 422 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Steve Alpert. For 15 years, beginning in 1996, he was a senior executive at Studio Ghibli, working to get anime movies such as Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, distributed outside of Japan. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, Sharing a House with the Never-Ending Man, which describes his friendship with star director Hayao Miyazaki, and explores what it was like to be the only non-Japanese employee at Studio Ghibli. And now here's our interview with Steve Alpert. All right, so we're here with Steve Alpert. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So you say in the book that growing up, your
2: idol was Burton Watson. So how did you get interested in him?
1: One of my idols, yeah. Um, I was interested in Japanese and Chinese poetry, and he was one of the best translators around at the time.
2: How did you get interested in Japanese and Chinese poetry?
1: Ah, uh, Wow, that's a good question. Uh, I guess through Japanese movies, mainly. I mean, that's where it started. When I was in college, I saw a lot of black and white Japanese movies, and I just fell in love with them.
2: We're talking about, like, Kurosawa and stuff like that?
1: Kurosawa, Ozu, Kenji Mizuguchi, Inagaki, those guys. Those are the names I can think of right now.
2: I thought it was funny in the book, because you say that Burton Watson... uh... He had been a Columbia University professor, and then he became a taxi driver?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was the rumor. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's what they said. He disappeared. Very sad about that.
2: And presumably because taxi drivers would make more money than professors? or I don't know.
1: No, you know, I think it might have been an existential statement or something like that. You know, he was just tired of academics maybe um he was a brilliant translator i mean i'm just speculating but he was a brilliant translator uh and i when i was at columbia my advisor at the time was donald Keene, which is pretty wonderful to be able to work with donald Keene. but he didn't allow his students to do translation he said it wasn't insufficiently academic so i was a little frustrated but you know i don't know I can't, I don't know what happened to Burton Watson type of truth, but he did some really beautiful translations while he was doing
2: You said that you switched from being a grad student in Japanese lit to doing an MBA. So what was that process like?
1: Uh, you know, I it was I came to the conclusion that, you know, because I I'd wanted to do translation and um, I stuck with academics for about as long as I could. I've read more obscure novels in Japanese than most Japanese people have <laughs> um, and you know it was kind of a slog, and I just wanted to do something more interesting and I actually enjoyed business school quite a lot,
2: so then, how did you end up in Japan
1: um complete accident well I mean I always wanted to go but it was actually a real accident I was working for a consulting company in New York after I got my MBA and uh, I was asked to do a presentation to a Japanese group on tax shelters so um, somebody uh, an expert on tax shelters wrote the presentation and then somebody else and I translated it into Japanese and then I memorized it and, uh, which was really difficult. And then I delivered it over a series of breakfast meetings and somebody offered me a job in Japan. Really wasn't expecting it, but, uh, that's how it happened.
2: I mean, I've never been to Japan, so it was really interesting to me reading the book, some of the cultural differences. So two of the things that really jumped out at me were the, uh, the job interview. Uh, that you describe of this young woman where they ask her (laughs) about her religious beliefs and her dating habits and how much money she has in her bank account. And then um, there's a part where uh, Takuma says, (laughs) um, you know, uh, an American businessman asks him, Oh, how's your family? And he takes you aside and says, what's his angle? Like, why does he care about my family? (laughs) That's
1: right. Uh, I have to point out that that's a very uh, traditional Kind of Japanese thinking, I guess you would call it, pretty much unique to uh, Tokuma, Mr. Tokuma, and you know the and also the kinds of questions that are asked. I don't know about you know like major corporations like Sony or you know other companies. I don't know if they do that, but old-fashioned Japanese companies would do that. You know, they'd ask crazy questions uh, that um, I think these days would get you landed in jail. <laughs>
2: Well, so then how did you end up at Studio Ghibli?
1: Um, well, I've been working for the Walt Disney Company. And uh, somebody in the Walt Disney Company uh, had the idea that, um, you know, this was, you have to go back to when uh, home video was a new and exciting thing that was just developing. It was a major source of revenue for um, Hollywood studios. It was just, you know, beginning to explode and they were always looking for, uh, things that would work in the United States, but also, you know, as an international company, they thought other places. So they were looking for untapped or unseen cinematic gems, I guess you could say. And somebody, uh, Somebody noticed that the films of Studio Ghibli were really popular in Japan, but had never been uh most of them had never been released abroad. So they uh some we at when I was at Disney, we tried to get the rights to Studio Ghibli's films. Uh I was involved in that. And uh got to know people at, at, at Studio Ghibli and its parent company, and then um after a couple of months, the Walt Disney Company wanted to move my job to Hong Kong, and I didn't want to go. So I quit, and Ghibli offered me a job.
2: I mean, one of the things about working there that really jumped out at me was the this process where um, Hayao Miyazaki didn't know the endings to these movies, and there was always yes. this um, sort of last-minute panic um, sort of to, yeah. to make the deadline, Um, did you you just talk about what that was like for you just, uh, emotionally?
1: Um, well, okay. So that's his process, but I mean, I compare it to, um, you know, jazz musicians, uh, improvising, they get up on the stage and they have an idea what they're going to play, but it's not written down. It's improvised. I'm thinking like, you know, Miles Davis and, and, uh, you know his music um, so that's what it was like. I mean you know you you respected their skill, and you Hayao Miyazaki was is a genius, and you always assumed he was going to come up with it, but it was always you know that was always exciting you <laughs> <laughs> assumed you assumed he would, but yet yeah, it hadn't yet happened if you know what I mean.
2: It's just funny in the book you describe him uh chopping wood. And all, all this sort of random yeah. stuff when he should be finishing up the, the script.
1: Well, you know, have you ever seen, you've, you've probably seen the uh, TV series Mad Men, which I just recently finished binge watching. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Right. And, you know, this guy Don Draper, who's the main character, he takes naps in the middle of the afternoon. Towards the end of the series, he goes to California and uh, goes to Essel and just kind of drops out. that's an extreme version i guess creative people you know don't uh how do i say it don't necessarily follow the the accepted pathway that's the way to put it so you know that was his process and uh i don't think anybody would ever dream of trying to uh you know duplicate that or emulate it but it worked for him it works for him may still be working for him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I noticed one of the, or, um, you know, two of the movies during your time there were Howl's Moving Castle yep. and Tales from Earthsea that are based on novels by Diana Wynne-Jones and Ursula Le Guin. And I was just wondering yeah. if the process was different adapting uh, a story that from a book than, than coming up with an original story.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Tales from Earthsea wasn't Hayao Miyazaki. That's his son, Goro, and uh, he uh, doesn't make movies the same way his father does. He's a little more structured. But how's Moving Castle, yeah, I mean uh, the way that the exact way the film ends, of course, is pretty much predetermined by by the book, but the way you'd show it, of course, is not. Uh, A film is an is a series of images, and somebody has to decide, you know, what images you're going to use to make that film. And so adapting a book, you have the idea in your head and, and images, but which images and how long they last and where you're going to put the camera, you know, all that kind of stuff is up to the director. Well, at least legitimately, it's up to the director. And because uh, he also wrote all the films that he made himself. Um, and, um, so that it's still a, a process, but there's somewhat more structure than if he were just making the whole thing up on his own, <laughs> like, uh, Moronoke, Hime Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, which uh, that's entirely out of his head.
2: Had you read, um, Howl's Moving Castle or the Earthsea books? Are you into fantasy and science yes. fiction books like that?
1: Uh, yes. I had read both. I read uh, I read the Earthsea books, and it was a thrill to meet her, so I went and talk to her. Uh, and uh, it was a real pleasure to meet Diana Wynne-Jones and talk to her.
2: Can you say more about, like, where did you meet them, and what did you talk about, and stuff like that?
1: Well, part of my job at Ghibli was to get the rights to make the movies in the first place. So I... Went to, Br- I went to Bristol, where Diana and Jones used to li- live when she was alive. And, uh, you know, for the final level of negotiations, you know, for a lot of, uh, fortunately, uh, she knows the work, had known the work of Hayao Mizuki, so it was a little bit easier. But, um, people who write novels are generally, some of them, are a little uh, reluctant to give over their uh, their works to filmmakers because they're not sure how you know how they'll be treated. So uh, you you talk to the agent, you get so far, but the, the last step is meeting the author and um, trying to give her an idea of what kind of film uh, Miyazaki would make. And um, so I went with. Um, Diana Wynne-Jones' agent to Bristol. And, uh, you know, we met at, uh, it was like 10 in the morning, and she offered me a drink, which I thought was a good sign. <laughs> uh, and um, it was great. I mean, you know, she ended up showing me around Bristol, which is incredibly interesting, especially in the area where she lived. And um, in the end, we didn't really talk much about the work itself. I think mean, she just wanted it. You know, be reassured that uh, Mr. Miyazaki really was going to be making this himself, which
2: he was. And how about Ursula Gwyn? What was it like meeting her?
1: Uh, Ursula Gwyn lived in Portland, or lived in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and I went with uh, Haya Miyazaki and uh, Toshio Suzuki, who's the producer. Um, she had previously said no to making uh, Tales from Earthsea into an animated film. And um, we went there to, you know, to ask her permission to do it. And it was really interesting. I, her son was uh, representing her at the time, and he and I had become friends since then. She showed us where she watched um, Mount St. Helens erupt from her her back window in her house. And uh, we spent the day chatting. It was great.
2: There's also a a photo in the book of you with Neil Gaiman. Did you spend much time talking with him?
1: Uh, Well, when we translated, when we did the uh, English dubbed version of um, Princess Mononoke with Miramax, Uh, Miramax hired Neil Gaiman to write the screenplay. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot about that in the book. And, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I spent the week I was in New York where we went over there. We spent a lot of time together. Uh, I think it was him and me against the Miramax people on a Hmm. lot of, a lot of things because they really wanted to change the film. And, uh, Neil was more respectful of the original, uh, you know, original filmmakers wishes. Uh, and it was a long process. I think I described it in the book. So yeah, I had a lot of contact with him and, um, he, I can't remember which one, but he, uh, he wanted some advice on, uh, one of his books that deals with something Asian. I can't remember now which one. And, uh, I, um, helped him with that. I'm thanked in the you know, the thanks to section in the book.
2: Uh, in the you say you're in the acknowledgements in the book. I think so. I can't remember which one it is. Mm. Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have um, a bad memory.
2: Well, no, but I thought that whole section in the book was really interesting because, you know, yeah, so Miramax hires Neil Gaiman to do kind of the English. Well,
1: I th- got to say, I was—I should say, I was really impressed with Neil. I mean, he, he flew, he was living in Minnesota then, he flew in, and uh, he met some guy, he was sitting next to some guy on the flight over who had introduced pornography to 42nd Street in New York, and he told Neil the entire story of how 42nd Street and you know, all those movie theaters there became the, the por- porno central for New York City, completely by accident. Originally, they were all art house movies. And uh, eventually, they discovered they could make more money uh, doing porn. It was a great He told really, uh, the story much better than I could. <laughs> it was a great story.
2: Yeah, this, because this is, this would have been actually what year would this have been? But it was was sort of a a seedier era for New York City. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, absolutely. You're, you're, I don't know how old you are, but maybe you'll remember when 42nd Street was that way. Yeah. Before, you know, Walt Disney and other companies like that bought buildings or put up buildings.
2: Well, you know, I, I grew up just, just outside New York City, but I didn't go into the city uh, as a kid much because uh, I was just scared, you know, because I would hear the <laughs> the news reports on the radio.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know. i try trying to explain that to my son, how New York City used to be a lot more dangerous than it is now. And you were probably right to be <laughs> scared.
2: Um. But, but so I was saying about the, the script that you say that, yeah, that Neil Gaiman's script for the English dub was, was really great. And then all sorts of, oh, um, yeah. changes and, um, Thank compromises you, yeah. had to be made to it. And you say actually at one point that, that almost no trace of his work was, was left in the script at all. And I was just curious, um, about the final disposition of that. How much, if you watch the English dub now, how much of what he wrote actually made it into the movie?
1: Um, I don't think it's possible to say anymore, to tell you the truth. That was a very, yeah. I mean, I, I talked about that a lot in the book, and I think maybe they edited it down a little bit, but nobody involved with that. Well, not nobody, but almost nobody involved with that had any experience dubbing a film. It was the first time for all of us and there was so much about it we didn't know. Um, I think Neil had the right idea. I mean, including the Miramax people, you know, who were managing the process, but Neil had the right idea. What he wanted to do was right, but somehow, uh, they, there was a miscommunication or something between him and Miramax and they didn't understand what he was trying to do, uh, which was, You know, I think I said in the book, he wanted to write it, uh, write it first as best he could, and then get at, you know, get some actors to come in, not necessarily professional actors, but just people who could read the script. And, um, and then he would see what he had to cut down in order to fit because, you know, you're writing an English script for images that already exist. And you have to make the mouth movements match and has to look convincing against the image. So he started with a great translation, and then he was going to pare it down to fit the images. But at some point, the Miramax people missed that. They thought that, um, they didn't understand that he was gonna do that. And then they hired a uh, an ADR director Jack Fletcher, who was very experienced and understood everything and explained to us what an ADR script was. And, uh, he had somebody in mind who, who knew how to, uh, I mean, the first step is you have to take the film and write down every single sound that any, including, you know, grunts and breaths and stuff that the actors make that somebody has to, you know, now go and do. And you start with that and get all the timing perfect, and then you start putting the words in. So somebody that Jack had hired began to do that, and Neil was, you know, refining his version. And we were trying to fit it in, get as much of Neil's stuff in as we possibly could while matching it to the images. And while all that was going on, you know, Harvey was Harvey Weinstein was trying to cast the film, and uh, he he really, really wanted Robin Williams to do a part, and Robin Williams didn't want to do it. Harvey wouldn't give up, so a lot of the parts weren't cast. He wanted Leonardo DiCaprio to do a voice, and he had he screened it for Leonardo DiCaprio's father. So, his father would convince Leonardo DiCaprio to do it, and he didn't want to do it and so all of that was going on and it just it took a long time and it was a very um not ideal process you know it was the first time we all did one, and we all learned a lot from it. <laughs>
2: Do you know if that, that original script that Neil Gaiman did, the, the ideal one, um, is that available anywhere? Cause it seems like it would make a good, like coffee table book or, um, subtitled version or something like that.
1: I wonder. I'm trying to think if I have one. Well, I don't think so. Oh. Well, I used to, but I don't think I do now. Somebody at Ghibli might have one.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I I'd be interested in in seeing that. I think a lot of people would. So yeah, if there's any way that that could be made available, I think that would be great.
1: Well, I don't, yeah, I don't. Mean, you could ask you Neil. Know, I could ask you Neil. Know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, as you probably understand, dub- getting a dubbing script for something that's already in a different language, you know, or doing subtitles is not about perfect. It's about making it work.
2: Yeah. Well, that, that was actually pretty eye opening to me reading the book. Um, Cause you know, I, I, record stuff all the time and it doesn't sound that great. And I always wonder how they get it so good in the movies. Um, and then just to read about oh. how exacting the process was and reading the same line 75 times until you get it without any, uh, you know, clicks or well, pops he, or anything. Okay.
1: All right. So, so how you get it so good is first of all, you start with incredibly talented people. I mean, uh, not that the people who did the first one, Princess Millennium, weren't talented. They were. There just were all kinds of other problems. But the ones afterwards, when we started when Pixar got involved and we started using Pixar people to do the dubs, um the the level just went way up. Those people are just unbelievable. You know, unbelievably talented people. So that's one thing is you get the talent and the second thing is money. I hate to say it, but, you know, it, it costs money to do those lines over and over until you get them perfect. And if you're willing to spend the money and do it over and over until you do get it perfect, then that's how you get a good a good dub. And, um, you know, to surprise like a lot of the actors surprise you in a lot of ways. We had um, Patrick Stewart do a voice in one of the films, you know, and he would do a line just Amazing, just perfect. And then he would want to do it again. He Hmm. would go, No, I can do it. I can do it better. So, and a lot of the people who did voices for us were like that. You know, you would go, Wow, this is perfect. And he would go, Let's do another two just in case. Hmm.
2: Another thing I wanted to ask you about from the book is that, you know, since I uh, interview a lot of people, it kind of jumped out at me how many negative experiences it seems like you had with interviewers.
0: (laughs)
1: Like what?
2: Uh, well, well, I mean, in particular, this New York Times reporter, uh, where he so, he
1: uh, he, yeah, he he actually apologized to me at some later date. But I mean, so the problem is, I, I may have mentioned this in the book. The problem was that a lot of people know that Hayao Miyazaki is famous, but they don't exactly know what he's famous for. So somehow they get, you know, especially at um, what they call these caravans you know publicity caravans to promote the film you would get people coming in who heard the name but had no idea you know what he did and the the questions they asked him were i would have to say insulting you know and um so that i guess that was a problem this guy from the new york times had just transferred from south america apparently he'd done something offended somebody <laughs> <and> they <laughs> had to move him to tokyo and he just arrived in Japan. He had, he didn't know anything about Japan at all. And uh, Princess Mononoke had just become the hottest thing for journalists. You know, and he, he either wanted to or was told to get an interview with Hayao Nizaki. And, you know, he didn't have the good sense to say that he had no idea what he was talking about and uh, didn't really Approach the problem in the right way.
2: Yeah, so he wants an interview right away, and you explain that Mr. Miyazaki is is very busy, and maybe in a few weeks you can line up an interview. And you quote you quote this guy as saying, "Now you look, this is the New York Times, okay? It's not some two bit local paper. So why don't you just tell me what time today or tomorrow I can come over and do the interview?"
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Like I said, I don't think that was probably the best approach on his part, but, uh, I was, so I never had expected, I think I said this in the book, I was in charge of, um, foreign, um, you know, distribution. And I had expected to talk to people in foreign countries about the film, you know, but I never, I wasn't really prepared to talk to anybody about the release of film in Japan. At that point, I'd just joined the company. And uh I didn't realize it was my job. So whenever somebody called in English, they would just, you know, pass the phone to me. And this guy from the New York Times called and I was, you know, I tried to be polite. And tell him that, you know, I mean, I wasn't fooling around or anything. We were about to go to Paris for something and uh, we weren't, Miyazaki wasn't going to be in the country and it wouldn't have been possible to do the interview but then he you know as as you just mentioned he said you know look just tell me what time I can talk to him and I and I'm coming down hmm. and he had said he had said something about um you know I saw the movie with the space aliens and the boy riding the tiger <laughs> which was not you know none of that was in the film so it, and I, and I offered to uh, you know we offered to screen it for him so he could see the film first and then do the interview afterwards but it took a nasty turn <laughs> I guess and I I did something that I never should have done so I lost my temper and I said you know I told him I I didn't care about the New York Times. <laughs>
2: so when he uh you say he, much later he apologized like what did he say what did he say like did he have an excuse or something or
1: no, he just said, you know he was sorry, sorry, i shouldn't have, you know I shouldn't have uh,
2: i didn't know what the film was I shouldn't have existed.
1: something like that
2: yeah I um, mean, you say that one of the good interviews was Roger Ebert, you say that Ebert and Miyazaki really hit it off. Could you say what they made did. that what made that a good interview
1: well he knows a lot about cinema. I, I wish I could remember what, you know, what was said, but obviously uh, Roger Ebert, nobody knows more about film than Roger Ebert did. And uh, I, I honestly, I can't remember, you know, what they talked about, but I just remember that they had a great conversation. It um, it was, um, press car—they call them press caravans—and um, a lot of the interviews are pretty much the same. They—they they even ask, "Could you tell us about your film?" You know what I mean?
0: And—and
1: hmm. and that's, "Can you tell us about your film?" So you haven't seen it, and you don't have any questions. Is that you know? Is that what you're saying? That's how a lot of the interviews go. So there are a lot of those interviews than Roger Ebert all of a sudden. So,
2: Well, you say in the book that the Roger Ebert interview, I didn't have time to track it down, but you say that it's online, I guess, if people are curious about it.
1: I think it was at that time uh, because the guy who snuck in after the <laughs> people defected, the guy who snuck in was recording it. Uh, and i I believe he posted it. But I'm not really sure. Somebody, I, I, okay, I have to confess, I'm really bad at uh, technology and stuff like that, social media. So I don't know exactly. Somebody told me it was online. I never saw it.
2: Well, that was funny in the book where this guy, this young guy comes in along with Roger Ebert, and you just assume that he's Roger Ebert's assistant. And then it turns out he's just some random fan who decided to crash the interview and, and record it.
1: Yep. (laughs) <laughs> who got a great who got a great break <laughs> it doesn't usually work out that way for these guys
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell us about the the memoir um sharing a house with a never ending man how did uh, how did you decide that you wanted to write a memoir
1: um I just felt that uh, I'd had so many kind of unique and special experiences I wanted to share them. Uh, so first I proposed it to, uh, somebody at Studio Ghibli. And it was originally published in, in Japanese. And then, uh, somebody at Iwanami Shoten wanted to make it into a book. So, um it was published in Japanese as a book. They edited it down a little bit. And I just, you know, I'm, uh, my my first language is English, and uh, I'm proud of the way I write and I just wanted it to be published in
2: I thought it should be published in uh, in English as well. So how did you go about approaching English language publishers
1: well i I uh, I know uh, Peter Goodman at Stonebridge Press. Right? You know, I've known him for a number of years, and uh, I I wanted I brought it to him because he publishes books about Japan, and I thought it would be the best place to to, to bring it out.
2: I mean, the book is interesting because it's a business memoir. Did you um do you read other business memoirs, or were there other books like this that you kind of were thinking of when you wrote it?
1: No. Uh, to tell you the truth, I was just thinking about, uh, getting down my experiences. Um, you know, the things I saw, the things I experienced. I, I didn't think of it as a business memoir, you know, necessarily. Um, to me, it's more about what it's like, um, dealing with as a foreigner living in Japan and being the person uh, who, who's responsible for explaining Japan to people who don't get Japan, like, for example, business executives at um, major Hollywood studios.
2: I mean, it is um, a lot. It is a really funny book. Did you expect it to be Thank you. funny when you yeah, wrote it?
1: Yeah, it, it's, yes, yes. I did. Thank you very much. It is supposed to be, I mean, yeah, a lot of it was just funny. I mean, some of the things can be funny in retrospect, if you know what I mean? Like, I think I described a meeting where uh, a Disney executive came to celebrate the um, signing of our, our contract between uh, Ghibli and its parent company and Walt Disney Company and the president of Tokuma Shoten, Ghibli's parent company decided he wanted to renegotiate the contract over dinner. And uh, so that was, you know, we'd spent two years getting this contract in place and uh, except for Mr. Tokuma, nobody wanted to do that. And, uh, you know, we we're all looking like, Oh my God, we just spent <laughs> two years doing this and he's just killed the entire deal. So, I think, uh, you know, I took a college course in Shakespeare, um, and the professor said the only difference between tragedy and the comedy is the ending. So there you go, you know, <laughs> in the end, it came out fine and we can laugh about it. So it was a comedy and it, it didn't end up being a tragedy.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I'm just thinking of some of the funny moments in the book and there's one that comes to mind where, um, Mr. Miyazaki goes to Disney, I guess, and they show him Fantasia 2000 and ask him what oh he thinks. God, yeah. And he says, yeah. it's it's terrible, really terrible. And the translator translates <laughs> yeah. it. Is, oh, it's very interesting. He thinks it's very interesting.
1: the translator was me. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, in a way, I sort of regret having that in the book because uh, the thing about it, it, not that it's not true, but well, there's two things. One is it it seems like Hayao Miyazaki doesn't respect Disney animators, which is absolutely untrue. You know, these guys are absolutely fantastic animators, and he definitely respects them. But, you know, a lot of people uh, complain about Disney, and they say it's, you know, it's like too Disney. You know what I mean? Uh Kind of stripped of its... um potential controversy is that a way to say it uh disney you know the corporation disney corporate has a way of commercializing things at the expense of the art and there's always this conflict between disney animators and their corporate um corporate what you know the people in the corporation who have a say in what they do i think there's always been this ever since um Disney animators first started animating. And um, no. Well, I think the better illustration is that, that they also pitched um, a story to Miyazaki at the same time. I don't know if you remember that. I think it was a new book. Where somebody, I think it was I don't remember who it was. It was either Katzenberg or maybe uh whoever was the head of Disney animation at the time, they asked me, they came to Japan and they asked Miyazaki, you know, if you were going to do a book right now, any book at all, what would you do? Give us the name of a book you'd like to animate. And, okay, so if you were to ask somebody like Hayao Miyazaki that, he's not going to tell you, <laughs> you know. He's not going to tell you that the one because the one he really wants to animate, he wants to do himself. He's not going to tell somebody else. But there are a whole bunch of books that he thinks are worth doing. But he's already decided he's not going to do it. But they're, they're good books. You know, I could I could have listed five or six of them at the time when I worked for him. So he told, you know, he told these Disney guys, well, this book and they went out and bought the rights. So then they pitched it to him, like you know, how would you like to? We we did the screenplay for this book, and here it is. So in the book, the original book, it was about this boy who lived with his grandparents, and his grandparents were very uncommunicative, and he was very his Parents had died, he was very lonely, and uh, they lived on a farm and he went out and he encountered a magical rock that talked disney took this and they took the talking rock and they and they decided that inside the talking rock was a fairy who was a winged uh, little beautiful fairy from another planet and they took away the um, grandparents and they made them into loving and a loving aunt and uncle who always talked to the boy and, um, you know, comfort him whenever he was upset. So, you know, Miyazaki was less than pleased with the story because he thought the book was about how fantasy, how when you're in a difficult, when you're a little kid and you're in a difficult situation, sometimes you turn to fantasy. Uh, to sort of fortify yourself and it can help you get through difficult times. And they had completely missed the point and obliterated the original story. So I think the, um, the Fantasia thing was, you know, something in that vein where, you know, they, they, sh- he thought they should have d- done something a little more daring and they, they went bland instead. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I was wondering if if Miyazaki ever read your book because there are incidents like um, yeah. when they're when they're trying to dub. Um, uh, a, <laughs> you know, he he specifically says don't. They're not rifles. Don't call them rifles. And then everyone's yeah. like, oh, they should just be called rifles. And you're like, and they're I like, he's should, never going to find out anyway. About,
1: I never thought about that. You know, you're right. So when when uh, originally when this this was all published in Japanese serially. Uh, Studio Ghibli had everybody who was involved re- read them, you know, to fact check it, including Hayao Miyazaki. So I know he read them all, and up until this moment, I didn't realize that he would have read that too. <laughs> so he knows. Damn. <laughs> but but he always said, um, still says that you know, once a film is done, he doesn't really want to look back at it, he's done everything he possibly could to make it the best film he can. Nothing else he can do, so there's no point in revisiting it. And that included, you know, he never really had anything to do with the uh, with the dub versions. In fact, the only time he really was excited, you know, we used to tell him, uh, you know, we're doing the boy, we got um, various and a famous movie stars doing the voices and he was going yeah, that's great and one time I said oh yeah I'm Lauren Bacall was doing the voice in and Castle he goes Lauren Bacall the Lauren Bacall he was really excited and uh, he actually you know we screened the film in New York he was very excited to actually meet her that was the only time he really showed a uh, much interest in the, in the dub version.
2: Mm-hmm. Did any of the other characters in the book uh, read it, or did you ever get any feedback from anyone who appears in the book? Not
1: yet. <laughs>
2: <laughs> see I there's, I a, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of kind of insider stuff and a lot of, I mean, m- many of the characters you use, um, you know, pseudonyms and, for them um, because, you know, they're kind of um, unflattering, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, incidents recounted in the book.
1: You mean you mean the Miramax
2: people? Yeah, yeah.
1: Or I don't know who else. Who else am I writing unflattering things about?
2: Well, there's a bunch of characters who are you know like Mister Mister C or like Z or X or um, Bill. Those kind, all those kinds of things. Oh
1: yeah, some of the Japanese. Right, the Japan I forgot about that. Yeah, the
2: Japanese guys.
1: You're right. Uh, yeah, one of the Disney lawyers who's mentioned was taught me everything I know about the law, you know, contract law regarding films. I'm sure he regrets that once I I moved to Studio Ghibli. But yeah, he he was very generous with his time. And look how I repaid him. Oh yeah yeah the people you right the people who uh, who did the um you know the first dub of uh, Kiki delivery service and uh Castle in the sky right I forgot about that <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe it you know they they that was very upsetting uh, they made so many changes and uh and then denied that they didn't change made any changing. Yes.
2: Yes. Yeah. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of conflict and drama in the book for for readers. Just to to let everyone know.
1: Wow. Yeah. I guess you're right. And somehow I forgot about that. <laughs> well, was... you know, all I can say is I tried to get it as accurately as I could, and it it is through, you know it's from my perspective. So. I don't know what else I can say about it. Yeah. I tried to I was be like,
2: Yeah, I was also just amazed at how much detail there was in the book, and I figured you must have been keeping a, a really detailed diary or something during while all this stuff was happening?
1: Um, it depends on what you're talking about. Um, you know, there's actually there's even a lot more technical detail that was edited out for the English version, I guess. So uh, to answer your question, uh, when we were doing the – uh the dub version of Princess Mononoke, okay. uh, Suzuki-san from Studio Ghibli asked me to, not exactly a diary, but I guess it amounts to the same thing. I would write down what I did during the day. They would send it to somebody at Studio Ghibli. They would translate it into Japanese and put it on their website. And then somebody at Studio Ghibli translated it back into English and put that on their website. And I didn't know they were doing it. And occasionally somebody would, you know, would show me something that, you know, from the internet. And I would look at it and I would just be horrified because <laughs> for one thing, the person uh, who did it, I know who who she is, has no sense of humor whatsoever and didn't get any of the jokes. And so there are all these, you know, there are all these translation mistakes. and know some of it really is me but i would see these things you know written down and i would just be horrified that uh they were out there <laughs> some of it some of it i'm responsible for and a lot of it i'm not so yes it was like keeping a diet for that part of it but the rest of it really was just um memory and okay? some of the things you just don't forget
0: yeah
2: I have to ask you about this. So when you're in New York, um, there's this part in the book where you say, um, Ginz and Arakawa were known in New York as architects, but also painters and philosophers. The couple had explored ideas about mortality by creating buildings meant to stop aging and preclude death, not entirely successfully, unfortunately. Could you say more about that? What what were the buildings that would preclude death?
1: uh, Well, I think you better off, you know, you could go to their website and you could, it's pretty, um, Just like it sounds, you know, I mean, to me, it sounds a little crazy, but uh, (laughs) they, (laughs) yeah, but they, but so he was a friend of, uh, he he died, she died recently too, I think, but he was a friend of Miyazaki's and uh, he would share his designs with Miyazaki and actually there was a, they almost got to build one. Somebody had some land uh, in a city just a bit west of Tokyo, and they were going to actually build one of these, one of uh, uh designs as a self-contained um, city in the shape of a donut. And uh, you know, it was kind of interesting, but it never got built. But, I mean, he, I think he did, I'm really not familiar with what he actually did build in not built, but he's, I think, a fairly well-known architect, and he's done some interesting things. But some of the things are a little, anyway, to me, sound a little crazy. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: reversible. I think they were talking about something called reversible destiny pioneers. You know, his uh, his wife asked me to translate that into Japanese, and I couldn't. <laughs> I don't know, but it was, you know, it was fascinating.
2: Yeah. So one of my favorite uh, movies growing up was The Last Unicorn. And I just found out recently that the animators who did the animation for that went on to be kind of the core group that founded Studio Ghibli. And I was just curious if anyone, while you were there, ever uh, said anything about working on The Last Unicorn?
1: Who were who you we talking about? Who? Who exactly? I, I'm not familiar with that film.
2: Oh, oh! you should watch it. It's it's great. It's based on a novel by Peter S. Beagle. Um, I'm writing a studio, it down. There was a studio called Topcraft, I think, and this yeah. is all just on Wikipedia, but it said that sort of the people from Topcraft went on to be a lot of the key figures in, um, in yeah, Studio Ghibli. I don't know any details beyond that.
1: Yeah, neither do I. I'm, I mean, I, my knowledge of the history of the studio pretty much starts with Studio Ghibli. Um Although I you know I met some of the people and uh, some of the people were still there when I started, um, so they had a kind of a interesting philosophy about uh, how you animate um, and um, you know it's based on observation and um, I think. So when I was still at Disney, somebody, they, <laughs> I, mean, I think I mentioned before, somebody wanted to, you know, to take, get hold of the films of Miyazaki Miyazaki distribute them. And, um, but the people who had this idea needed to sell it to the corporate executives who were their bosses and they weren't sure how to do it. So what we decided was go, to the Disney animators and have the Disney animators explain it to them. You know, in other words, they would be hearing from their own people, essentially. And we didn't really know, um, you know, how that would work out. We just assumed that they would be able to tell us. And so we went in with cameras and a, you know, kind of a film crew and all the animators had like, um, pirated versions of Ghibli's, um, art books on their desks and little cultural, you know, on their desk. Hmm. They were very willing to talk about Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. And I asked one of the directors, you know, so everybody says that you know Miyazaki is one of the greatest animators and animation directors ever. What is it exactly that makes him so great? And they said, the guy explained to me, he said, look, you know, you can if you're doing animation, animating a scene you might have the characters go right to left left to right up and down you know down and up but if you're going to have them go back into space you know i don't know if this is easier to do in person like in your hands but if you're getting them to do to go back into space you know that's really difficult that takes really uh, you have to be really brave to to, to go that route in hand-drawn animation. And Miyazaki is fearless. He's absolutely fearless, and he can, he's one of the few animators who, can, who could bring it off. And his sense of timing is just unbelievable. And um, so I learned from the animators you know, what, exactly what it is about Hayao Miyazaki that makes him such a uniquely gifted, special uh, animator and director. And that's the thing about Studio Ghibli is that you know there's no layer of corporate guys on top interfering. So when they decide to do something, it's up to the filmmakers. They just do it. You know, however much it costs. I think uh in the book I mentioned there's a thing I was watching uh Princess Mononoke, you know, I watched it like hundreds of times. And there was this one um scene where and if you're familiar with the film, Ashitaka San, Princess Mononoke, jumps up on a roof and runs across the roof, and Ashitaka jumps up on the roof to go after her, and when he jumps up, he hits a corner of the roof and it crumbles and falls to the ground. You know, simple thing like that, right? And uh so to do this, you know, when you're animating, you animate the characters, but the background is done in, you know, lavish watercolor. And to make something in the background move, you have to get one of the background guys to do, you know, to animate this little chunk of the roof that's going to fall off. And it's really time consuming. And, and, you know, in, in any movie time is money costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time, and it just goes by in a split second. And I once asked Miyazaki, I said, you know, that, do, do you really have to do that? You know, I mean, most people won't even see it. I only saw it because I've seen the movie, you know, five or 600 times. <laughs> he goes, you may not think you see it, but subconsciously you're aware of it. And that's the kind of thing that gives a richness and real feel. Texture to the film. You know, that kind of thing is what it's all about. You know, that's it. I, I've talked to people at other studios, and I'm pretty sure no one anywhere else except maybe Pixar would do that. Uh, you know, that the producer might say, That's a great idea. Uh, I'm sure it's great, but we're just not going to do that. You know, but at Studio Ghibli, they do it.
2: So if anyone is listening to this and they want to get a job at Studio Ghibli, do you have any advice yeah, for learn,
1: them? learn Japanese to, start, <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> yeah, you have to be able to speak Japanese. Or it's a thoroughly Japanese environment. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, they, they never, when they hire animators, they almost they i don't want to say never but they almost never hire anybody who's been to um you know animation school or art school you know they he i think Miyazaki thinks that if you learned it in a school it's definitely going to be wrong <laughs> but that that's how they that's pretty much how they think whatever you learned in school for debt. <laughs>
2: All right, so we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any just any other final thoughts or uh, any other projects you're working on that you want to let people know about?
1: Uh, not really. Uh, I guess I'm supposed to say something about the book, but anyway, I definitely appreciate your interest. And uh, I thank you for reading the book and for inviting me.
2: Yeah, well, it's a really interesting, really entertaining book. I really enjoyed it. Again, it's called Sharing a House with a Never-Ending Man, 15 Years at Studio Ghibli.
0: Uh, So, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Steve Alpert for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.